Welcome to Every Step Podcast. I'm Christina Weston. And I'm Judith Beck. Every Step is the podcast where career and life meet. With a new guest every episode, we explore the gutsy issues affecting everyone in the workplace. Today, we are joined by Brian Hartzer. Brian is an experienced executive, leadership mentor, and investor who is chairman of Before Pay, an ASX-listed salary advanced business, and Rejig, which is an AI-based HR technology startup. Prior to his current roles, Brian was CEO of Westpac Banking Group and is also the author of The Leadership Star, which is a practical guide to building engagement. Brian, we're so happy to have you here. Welcome. Thanks. I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. Well, you know, I'm a firm believer that there is a top 10% of people who are exceptional leaders and who do everything consistently well. Many of those are silent achievers. And they are truly, as you say, Brian, leadership stars. So I wonder from your observations, what did the next step managers do differently to move up the ladder that set them apart from the rest of, of your teams over the years? That's an interesting question. I think I think there's a few things. Um, so first, I think the essence of success in business is the combination of delivering above and beyond what's been asked of you consistently and being good to work with, by which I mean someone who goes out of their way to build good relationships with people. And the essence of that is uh, empathy, it's emotional intelligence, it's a willingness to be generous and help other people be successful. And so I think that kind of self-awareness and emotional intelligence to me are the things that tend to distinguish it because most people in companies are well-educated, they're intelligent, they're people of high integrity, and it's the ones who really work on themselves and work on their relationships, as well as making sure they consistently deliver, that I think end up getting the opportunities that allow them to advance. Yeah, this seems like a, a real theme that's coming through now. And if I look back to my early days in in my career, we weren't talking about these things. It was like, where's your MBA and where's your MBA from? And that was what what was kind of required to to get the to get the gig. And it's really interesting that we're having a very very different conversation about what makes a good leader. Yeah, well, I'm I'm lucky in that that I've obviously come after that because I don't have an MBA, uh, and uh, so I, I guess I had, do I. To, <laughs> I had to figure it out a bit on the way way along. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, maybe there's one other thing that I would throw in, which is a genuine interest in seeing other people do well. That was certainly something that unlocked it for me was realizing that I got more satisfaction out of seeing other people do well than just being the smart guy in the corner. Um, and, and I guess that puts you in a mindset where you are more interested in creating impact, uh, and, and then the people that you work for see you as someone who makes things better and brings people along with them and all those sort of things. And, uh, and I guess people are increasingly looking for that when they're thinking about how they're going to have leadership in in an environment that is less predictable and where you need to be able to adapt and draw on people's different talents. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I probably over my 25 years of doing executive search over the years and seeing 
senior people and placing pe senior people in positions. Um, I noticed that a lot of the, what we would call leadership stars or the top 10%, they were very consistent in everything that they did. And um, they were also confident, but not arrogant. So they were, they were what I kind of called the, the quiet achiever. And they, di they didn't have to um, beat their drum. Uh, their results, you know, so were kind of proof of the pudding <laughs> there. And, and, and they were always very good about when I think about some of the ones that have come to mind now, their, their leadership skills were exceptional in that people just love to work for them. And it really, it, because they, they um, uh, were given responsibility and they were given um, authority to do what they needed to do by that person. And that always resonated with people. It was very difficult for me to headhunt somebody away from a leadership star because people were like, no, I love this person. <laughs> and, and if I'm going to move, it better be really, really good because this person's got my back. And this person, I know that if they leave, they'll bring me, you know, I'll have a good opportunity to get their job or, or go to another organization with them. So there was that really strong sense of loyalty. Yeah, well, it's a cliche, but I the flip side of that is I used to say people don't leave organizations, they lead, leave leaders. And that's certainly been my experience, is that if you've built a good relationship that has people emotionally engaged in the work and in the team that they're part of, it is, it is certainly hard to pry them out. And that's been um, a big part of the book that you referenced that I, that I wrote is, is really about what is the process for building emotional engagement in a team? And some of that is about the the connection to the individual leader. And certainly uh, the personal characteristics of the leader, I think, do matter a lot. It's funny when you talk about it like that, I get slightly uncomfortable about the whole notion of loyalty. Um, there are certainly many leaders who take their same team along with them everywhere. Um, and I've always felt slightly awkward about that because I... I felt like I had a responsibility in the jobs that I went into to make sure I could get the very best people for the roles that were needed at the time. And I had an obligation to look after the people who worked for me's best interest, but that didn't necessarily mean that my job was to protect them and, and hold on to them. It was, to me, it was more like finding the right next opportunity for them. And that might not be with me. And I've always approach those conversations with people that let the start of this conversation is let's talk about what's best for you. And then I'll talk about what my interests are and what the company's interests are. Um, so I guess I just, since we're kind of shooting the breeze on this, I would say that um, it is, it is certainly a reasonably effective strategy to align yourself with one person and follow them. But I personally think that that ultimately holds leaders and the individuals back. If, if they, if the, the primary thing is this personal loyalty. I'm not sure that actually takes you to to a world class performance position. Yeah. Well, it's actually. interesting that you say that because we've had a few people on who we've talked about something similar mm -hmm. in that they never um, they never took their team to their other organizations because they would say, "No, my my role is to go in there and assess the new organization's talent." And see and and get the lay of the land, not just take people over with, over not and that doesn't mean that the people that they left 
didn't think that that could happen. But as a as a leader or top the uh, leadership star, that their view was, I'm going to go to this organization and and um, I'm going to sort uh, suss it out first, find out what the strengths and weaknesses are of people that are there and what kind of talent that I need. Because if I do bring people over immediately from another organization, um, what kind of a message does that set to the organization that I'm going in? And I used to see that through executive search with with candidates would would uh, who would say, oh, they just take they just take their buddies over to that organization with them. And so that person who did that was not a leadership star because they didn't do that process of assessment. And it left a bad taste in the mouth of the people who were at that organization. And often they would lose really good, talented people because yeah. they felt they didn't get the opportunity um, to move or to, to move into the next position. That's certainly been my view. I mean, when I left ANZ to go to RBS, I didn't take anyone with me. The first person that I hired was actually someone who'd been a competitor in the Australian market. Um, so I, I hired in. Um, Les Matheson, who had run Citibank um, in Australia, and I knew him from the market, and I thought he'd be fantastic for this particular role. Um, but I didn't immediately, I think I ended up hiring one person who had worked for me before for a particular role that I knew he was really, really good at. Actually, two, sorry. I brought another person in um, a while later, initially as a consultant to help with something, and then they ended up staying. But I, um, yeah, I, I think it's, I think you owe it to the company not to view it as it's about your personal fiefdom. I just, I know some people can be effective for a while like that, but that that's just not me. Yeah. 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 Um, one of the things that I'm always curious about is that, I mean, when you're at senior levels and you have big teams and I, and one of the things that I saw again over the years with executive search is that I saw a lot of pretenders so they were people who were really good about managing upwards and giving the impression of success, but they weren't very good with their teams, but they kept getting hired. And often every time they'd get hired or headhunted, it'd be a, to a more senior role. And, and, and I always wondered how, as a, a senior person within organization, hiring your team, do you sort out the people who are good at managing up and they are the and they are the pretenders what sets reality apart from um non-reality it's an excellent question and a tough one i don't think there's a a simple answer to that um i think uh, i think about it in two different dimensions you've touched on two aspects one is the hiring piece which is i think I've certainly had a great respect for the process of finding and hiring people and have studied a bit about how to do that effectively. And um, and I so the interview process and the referencing process, I think, are really important to do yourself and to try to really understand who this person is and what makes them tick and what examples they can give you. And does it all hang together? And I've found I haven't made too many mistakes if, uh, when I look back. In, uh, um, and there have been people who I turned down who were subsequently hired in other places where it turned out that I was glad that I hadn't hired them. 
Um, and, and so I think if you if you use a it's it's not a perfect thing, but I think if you if you really dig into who people are and and what their track record is and what people say about them and read what between the lines of what's said and what isn't said, you can get a good handle on it. I think when people are working for you already, um, it's a little tougher in some respects. Um, certainly, the obvious thing is to look at outcomes rather than just what they're saying and making sure that you're not getting seduced by the narrative, but that you're actually looking at measurable results. Uh, I think I certainly have always paid close attention to um, the staff survey or engagement results that people get and look at the verbatims of what people are saying deeper in the organization. Um, I've certainly been aware of senior executives who've effectively bullied their people into giving good scores on staff surveys. So you have to be Ouch. careful about that. Um, but I think if you, if you dig into the detail of it, often you can, you can glean when there's, when there's an issue going on there. The other thing that I really like to look at is the quality of the people that people hire. So to me, one of the best bits of evidence about how good a leader is, is to look at their team and say, what's the caliber of the people that they hire. One, one of the things that I would do consistently every year in my performance appraisals is I would have a measure for every executive, which is improve your bench strength. And the, the or that's the goal. The measure is uh, that I will judge it. And, and when I would explain to people what I mean by that is at the end of the year, as part of our performance conversation, I'm going to say to you, how have you improved the bench strength of your team this year? And you're going to tell me. And I'm going to be interested in who you've hired, who you've moved on, who you've promoted, who you've developed, uh, who you've rotated around, what sort of things are you working on with them? And I'm just going to listen to that and decide whether or not I think that's compelling or not. <laughs> and and I think if you want to assess a leader, you look at the caliber of their team and the movement in that team and and are they are they someone who's attracting really high quality people to come and join them, or are they taking the same people along with them everywhere? Um, those sorts of things. And, takes, you, yeah. and I think the other piece is to get out of your office and go out and look with your own eyes as to what's going on and talk to people and take your own soundings. And if you do enough of that, you you get an instinct for when you're being spun. I think it takes a leader with a high degree of self-confidence to, and this is what we obviously need a star to be, to employ people that are either smarter than them or better than them and improve their, their bench strength. Did you yeah. find some of your leaders found that process challenging? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, uh, so I have a little, I'll digress for a second and say, I have a little insight or philosophy, I guess, which is, I assume everyone is insecure. Uh, and I find that most behavior in a working environment makes sense if you assume people are insecure and that that's driving their behavior. Um, and so I think um, there are definitely people who find it hard to hire people that um, threaten them intellectually or or whatever. Um, I made a, a personal decision um, early on in my management career that I would much prefer to have a frisky paddock uh, than a bunch of mules. Um, <laughs> and, and I accepted, it was a very deliberate thing. I just, I, 
I guess I read somewhere that it was important to be able to hire people that were better than you. And I just made it a thing that I was going to go out and try and find the very best people I could. And if they made me nervous or challenged me from time to time, well, that was probably a good thing. Um, and I just accepted that that was a good philosophy. And I think it, for the most part, it, it did, um, it did stand me in pretty good stead. Absolutely. Oh, well, it's kind of goes along with the, um, you know, being able to take critique and taking it on board. So um, people who are higher high achievers or probably leadership stars, they they like the idea that people will give them feedback and critique, and they don't take it personal. They actually take it on board, and I yeah. think that's one of the things that and that goes with hiring really good staff, hire people. As I, I remember, I had somebody, um, a boss, and when I first was in banking years and years ago, before I started my business, say that the same thing, hire people who are better, better than you, because they'll make you shine. And then they'll, your, your boss will see that and they'll move you on into the next and the people that you're mentoring will move into your role. And it, and it seemed logical to me. <laughs> it seemed like a common sense thing. Yeah. Yeah, you want to float your boat. So to Absolutely. Speak. Now, so, as, a, as a mentor over the years as, as well, did you find that there were differences that you've seen from people from the male, the males that you've mentored and the females coming up in the in the rank? Have you, did you um, observe any strengths or weaknesses or have things changed in that in that regards? Um, yeah, I, I'd say I think the cliches are are pretty true. They're cliches for a reason. Um I've certainly seen examples of men who are overly confident and not necessarily willing to take criticism. Um, many do, but but there are examples there. Um, and I would say I've definitely seen a lot of women who need to be pushed. Um, uh, I hope this doesn't push your buttons the wrong way, but I was once asked in a in a, a town hall meeting at Westpac uh what's the sort of advice that you give to someone who's mentoring a female um executive and i said actually mentoring female women female executives is really easy all you have to do is say yes you can a lot you know <laughs> well i don't know yes you can <laughs> yeah, and and i i've definitely found for the most part um that what the women that i've mentored needed to be given the confidence to set their aspirations higher um, and not feel like they had to have proven every last thing before they took on a bigger challenge. Um, now I would, I would say that that's not, people are all different obviously. And um, in advance of this discussion, I was reflecting a bit on some of the women that I've mentored who have done really, really well. And one of the characteristics that I've seen of them is just an inherent drive and and um healthy ambition um and willingness to overcome obstacles um that uh i've noticed and it it seems to i think and this is true of men too in many cases that a lot of that inner drive often has to do with people's backstory and their personal um history and how that has shape them yeah shape them and shape their ambitions and their their resilience and their ability to overcome obstacles and that's, yeah that's um, so that's so true 
so true. Judith and I were having this conversation yesterday and we were, we were, we were reflecting on exactly the thing that we're talking about and we're saying, well, why, Judith, are you and I different? Why did we never feel that there was a ceiling? Why did we just go for it? And we both came from family backgrounds where there were no limits, where we were pushed where we were encouraged and we didn't we weren't told we were stupid we were told we could do anything and and that probably set us apart we we haven't had the same experiences that necessarily others have had because in part because of our backstory mm. and we yeah, obviously we worked hard and you know we were ambitious and we worked hard and we put in the hours and we treated people well around us and you know it goes on but yeah what I've also seen, though, is women who've been from difficult backgrounds who have gotten used to having to make their own way and get mm. over things and build confidence as a consequence of that, that um, have been kind of more willing to push a bit. That's absolutely. Now, I, now um, several years ago, I started a program called Few Good Men. And basically, it was the senior women within the industry that were paired with one of the senior men in the industry. So they had to be at at least GM level. Most of them were EGM or divisional director level or CEO. And those women who got, and they, they became their advocate for 12 months. And those women who got paired with the few good men, um, they said it was life-changing for them because when they had the meetings with them, um, the message that kept coming back was, he really challenged me. He kept saying, why, well, why, like you said, why not? <laughs> yes, you can. Just do it. And what have you got to lose? All those different, you know, sort of things that you need somebody in your corner to tell you and who's not going to sugarcoat it. Um, because over the years, you know, we have, like when I was doing search, the, what I found the difference was between the men and the women during all those years was that the men had people in their corner telling them, what do you got to lose? Go for it. They had all these advocates, you know, they had a, on average about 12 by the time they got to mid-level and the women didn't. And um, they didn't take that advantage of doing it. I, I think a lot of that has changed now. So we, there's a lot more information with a lot of groups out there that we're really probably now at that stage where the groups don't need to be male or women. They need to be together so that they can learn together that type of thing but um really who's in your corner is so instrumental but even to get someone to go for a senior position within an organization female I actually would be doing the assignments where I did the internal and the external process and I'd have to say to the to the company how come there's no female candidates applying for this role? And they go, well, it's been out there. And I'd have to get permission to headhunt out of that company. So virtually I'd have to, so I might be doing a private banking role. Then I'd tap a shoulder on somebody from business banking or retail that was really good. And I'd hear, oh, but I don't have private banking experience. <laughs> so what? You've been running a, You've been running a team. And it was that kind of, yeah. Um, where the guys didn't care. The guys just went, hey, I'll give it a go. I'll go I'll go for that role because I'll meet people. If they don't think I'm right, they'll tell me. I'll meet people. I'll, it's a networking, and then I'll be top of the mind. I'll be on the radar, and it, and it works every time. Even if they don't get the role, they're on the radar, and they've met yeah. people. So it's, it's, um, it's that philosophy. 
It's it's really interesting because in your opening statements when we started to talk about what makes a leadership star, there was not one word about domain experience. It was a whole range of other characteristics, personal characteristics, not necessarily having domain experience in this product area or that product area or this vertical or that vertical. So it's really interesting that when we talk to leaders about what makes a great leader, they talk about the soft, the softer skills, the interpersonal skills, um, self-awareness, and they're not saying, oh, they need to have really good skills in ABC domain. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably put a little subtlety on that, which is that um, you can go too far in this direction. So I did say that you've got to have a track record of delivery. And I do think sometimes the um, the coaching industry and all the atmospherics around that can step away from the fact that you actually need people who get stuff done and do it well and are prepared to to work hard and get into the detail on stuff. And I um, I, I often would counsel people on career development. Um, I, I call uh, I describe it as the Zen of career development, which is if you want to get promoted and make a lot of money, the, what you should do is not worry about that um, and actually just worry about being really good at what you do and building relationships with people and those things will follow. Um, and and I do think there is an element where what like one little thing about my background was that I made a commitment to myself based on observing a boss I had who flamed out very early in my career that I was not going to move up until I'd mastered the level that I was at. And so a couple of times in my career, I actually turned down promotions because I felt that I was not ready um, and that I really needed to get more out of the phase that I was in. And I think that was a really important thing that I did. And I, I do think that um, uh, having at least one area where you have real domain expertise, I think, is an essential component of of rising in an organization you need something you can you can um build your credibility on um i had a boss who once described it as you want to be t-shaped where you want to be able to go really deep on something and then you know reasonably broad on a lot of things yeah. that, well, that's well, it goes with that whole thing of um you know how people will say oh we'll just fake it till you make it and you know that just doesn't work mm -hmm. they at the end of the day you if you don't know something if you're going into a new role, then you need to actually say what it is that you don't know so that yeah. you can learn it. <laughs> because if you try to fake it and then make mistakes, that's not going to work. There'll be tears. So it's okay not to know everything um, and be honest what you don't know so that you can learn it. And yeah, that's well, sorry, go on. No, and that's where a lot of people think, oh, well, I'm just going to go for the role and I'll just, you know, over over exaggerate my background and my experience or my achievements or whatever. And it always comes back to bite. Yeah. Um, another commitment I made to myself early on was that I was always going to ask stupid questions. And I've just made that a, a habit that I'm not afraid to say, I'm really sorry, I don't understand that. Can you can you explain that again? And, and I, I still do that. And um, I've also learned, by the way, that if you ask some, if you don't understand something and you get them to explain it and you still don't understand it, the chances are it's actually them, not you, <laughs> which, is, which is an interesting thing. Um, but there was also something I want to touch on that you mentioned earlier about confidence and arrogance. Um, and I think that 
it it's really interesting how so many important things I've decided in in life or in careers are just not binary. There are so many things where we are we want a simple solution to something like you need to be going and be really confident or 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 whatever. And and I've always approached things from the standpoint that I have an inherent sense of confidence based on uh, I guess starting with my education and the things that I've gotten to do that I'm I'm pretty confident that I'm capable of figuring most things out over time. And so I do, I have an inherent sense that yeah, I can probably I'll probably be okay. But I don't kid myself that I have all these incredible skills and in fact I I try to not have excessive confidence about most things that I go into and actually just have an open mind and try and be curious and take it all in. And, um, and so I think that, and I think that has stood me in, in pretty good stead over the years. Um, there's one little subtlety of the fake it till you make it piece that I, I guess, while we're touching all these things that I would say, which is that um, certainly as a CEO of a large company, you're often in these positions, you're put into these um, uh, public situations or you have to stand up in front of a thousand people or whatever. And I would often think to myself, what the hell am I doing here? I mean, I'm just a suburban kid from Connecticut. Like, you know, what do I know? And and you have to say to yourself, well, actually, part of this is playing a role. And, and so there are times when you have to play a role um, and just go through with something. Maybe it's, maybe it's having a, doing a presentation that's really, you're, you're giving bad news to people and, and you have to toe the company line on some issue or, um, or whatever. And, and so there are times when you have to just make yourself do these things, um, even if you feel a little uncomfortable about it. Um, and over time you get better at doing things because you have more of these experiences. But so I wouldn't, um, yeah. the reason I, I highlight that is there are people who fall into this. Well, this is just the way I am. And, and I only do this and, you know, and they don't like it. Well, bad luck. Well, I think that's kind of naive and immature as well. So I, I just think it's, it, there's subtleties on these things. There, you're right. Yeah. Uh, but the, the thing is, the fact that you said that you would ask questions if you don't know things, and then you also getting up there and having to send a message and thinking, what am I doing here? I'm just from Connecticut. That's confidence as far as I'm concerned, because you have the, you have the confidence to be able to ask about things that you don't know or not be um, so cocky that you get up there and go, well, I know it all and everything else. And I think that in itself is confidence where you you are brave, like it's being brave to ask the question rather than just trying to s slide fluff through. To it. fluff it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And And I mean, I used to always say to candidates, especially at senior levels, because that's where that sort of... Um, I'm going to go in there and show them how great I am. And I would say you have to go into the interview as if it's an as if you're going to be investing money, your own money into this organization and ask those questions as an investor. And then hopefully they'll ask you what return you're going to give the organization. And if you kind of 
then you'll ask questions that are about the business because you're putting your own money into it. And, and virtually you are putting your own money into it if you're going to another job because you're putting your um, career into their hands as well. And asking questions that most people wouldn't ask, I think that's a form of confidence. I think that that is really good to be able to yeah. do that. And, and I certainly think that, uh, yes, I agree. If you, When you ask questions, when you say, I'm, if I'm sitting in a room with 20 people and they're all talking about something, I go, look, I'm really sorry to ask this, but what does that mean? Yeah. Um, that acronym, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That um, that will uh, that sends a message that you are your your self image is secure enough That's that right. you, you're not afraid to look dumb um, or or whatever. Um, so it 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 does uh, it is a useful technique actually that asking a dumb question does send a message that you're confident. I think that's yes. right. Do you think we have a skills gap between where uh, leadership star can be and where the majority of kind of up and coming leaders are, or are we are we at that point where there's a much greater awareness of the skills that are acquired outside of domain? Assuming people are really good in their in their particular domain, is there still that skills gap in your observation in terms of people you're coaching, organisations you're working with, and investing in? Um, yes, I think so. Um, it's interesting. You've been referring to the leadership star. The, the reason I called my book the leadership star was not to suggest that, um, certainly not that I was a, a star leader. It, the, the idea of the star was there's five points on a star and it's a mnemonic to remember the framework that's in my book. So I, so my framework, um, is about, I guess you could think of it as skill building that, um, I found that I didn't have a framework for thinking about what are the things I need to go do on a consistent basis as a leader. There's lots of generic things about supporting your people and empathy and um, being inspirational and, you, you know, whatever. You read all these things and you kind of go, OK, yeah, but what do I do on Monday? And so I think that um, a gap that I saw was giving people a framework to think about what do I personally need to go do uh, on a regular basis? And that was the contribution that I tried to make. So there's a lot of talking about leadership. There's not so much talking about how to do it. Correct. Um, and, and so I guess in that sense, I think, yes, there is there is a gap. There's a lot of support for people about thinking about resilience. There's a lot of support about um, the importance of authenticity and and purpose and and these sort of things are, but they, they, I found they're often talked about in kind of conceptual terms rather than, okay, here's a way to go and do this. Um, there's a lot of managerial frameworks and techniques that you have this set of operating rhythms and sales rhythms and so forth. But this, this notion of how you engage people emotionally in a sense of purpose and bring them together and inspire a team how do you actually do that? I, I felt is is something that we don't necessarily teach people. Yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. It's it's these throwaway lines, but we're not actually doing the step through, and we're not talking about the emotional workout and the reflection and the self awareness that needs to take place and the work that we need to do in ourselves before we can actually be that for others. Yeah. So you're yep. spot on. You're spot on. Absolutely. And how do you think that with these new, with the new 
environments that we're in working from home and people sort of being, you know, how, how do you think that leaders are going to, do you think they're going to have to change or is this, is, do you think this is something that's going to pass or do you think it's, um, they'll have to adapt new ways of engagement? And if, if so, what kind of ways do you think they'll have to engage with their, their leadership teams now to make sure that they are, um, you know, they, they are bonded, you know, so they are um, part of the team, basically. Yeah. So I think in a corporate environment, um, a typical office environment where probably a lot of your listeners are are working, I think hybrid working is here to stay. I think it is probably, it probably went to an extreme during COVID and it's probably in a process of winding back a bit, but I don't think it's going to go back to the same um, focus on being in person that everybody did before. Um, what I think that does is makes the the process of leadership a little more challenging, but doesn't necessarily change what you need to do. It's a bit, bit more about how you need to do it. So if I think about the, the five things that I say are important to building an engaged team, it's demonstrating care for the individual. It's giving people context, the purpose about why the organization exists. It's giving them clarity about what a good performance looks like, what a great performance looks like, what behavior is important. It's about clearing the way for them so that you can knock over the barriers to their success. And it's about celebrating their performance. So building a culture of appreciation. All of those things are a bit easier to do when you're together physically as a team. So how do you build a trusting, caring relationship with individuals when you're only dealing with them staring at a Zoom screen. You know, I think that's actually a little harder. So you have to be a bit more creative and recognize that the essence of what I need to do is build a relationship of trust with each individual where they feel acknowledged for who they are, that I'm interested in their success on their own terms, and that I am taking actions to help them be more successful on their own terms. So how do I do that in a remote environment? Well, I'll give you one little simple example, which is that I think the process of staring at your, each other on Zoom screens is a bit confronting and, and slightly awkward um, and hard to really build a, a warm relationship with people. My suggestion is ring your people up at five o'clock in the afternoon and just go, how are you? How are you doing? Um, on, on the old fashioned phone. And, and just have an old fashioned conversation where they're not worried about how their makeup is or, you know, if their hair is sticking up or or whatever you can just and, and they're not in a rush to get to the next Zoom meeting that's scheduled for 20 minutes from now. You can actually relate to people. And now in a perfect world, you get people together physically from time to time to break the ice and get to know each other on a more personal basis and give people a chance to let their guard down and talk about how they're really feeling about stuff and what their aspirations are and, and so on. Um, so I, I just use that as an example that pick up the phone as opposed to do it, schedule a zoom call at, at 10 30 AM um, as one little example. And then um, if you think about uh, uh, to pick one more, so context for me is a lot about purpose and helping people connect what they do all day with the broader purpose of the organization and the impact that it has. Now, if all I do all day is sit at home and process paper and, and create PowerPoint presentations or whatever it is that I do, then I'm not necessarily going to feel connected to the outcome. 
So how can I create some events or some, uh, maybe it's a sim if it has to be, but remote, well, can we invite a customer to come to a Zoom meeting and talk about the impact of the product or the service that we're providing on their business and, and bring it to life for people? I just think you have to be more creative about, about how you do these things. Um, and I do think wherever possible, there needs to be an element of in-person uh, connection because we are social animals. And, and I think in the long run, leaders who are successful need to drive creativity and innovation. And I don't think that happens that easily in a, in a stilted multi-screen Zoom meeting. I think you have to get people together interacting informally for that kind of work to happen and for the, the mentoring that you need to create a, an effective and sustainable organization. Yeah, what was that old adage, adage norming, forming? Uh, storming, norming, and forming. Storm, for, yes. Storming, forming, and norming. Yeah, yeah. and perform, yeah. Yeah. And, and you don't do that. You you don't create that interpersonal interactions and that it comes down to trust as well. I think trust is is really, Absolutely. really important and that yeah. that's more challenging and you need to be much more intentional um, about things as you've just been describing, you need to be intentional to create an organization that does that when people are disparate and and working asynchronous hours sometimes depending on where they are. So yeah, the, the care thing is a lot about building a trusting relationship with each individual um, so that they trust that you have their interest at heart and therefore they're willing to hear feedback, good and bad, uh, and they're willing to raise issues with you, uh, good and bad. Uh, and so, yeah, I think, um, taking the time to build that trusting relationship with each person as an individual is, is really critical. Yeah. Brian, this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. We, we really appreciate the time you've spent with us. So thank you so much. That's, that's my pleasure. And hopefully if people get a chance to have a look at, at the book or to go to the website for the leadershipstar.com there's uh i've put a um a little tool on there it's free called uh, virtual brian and you can if you have questions about uh, leadership issues you can type them in and and you'll get a response from virtual me yeah it's and super you'll not fun. Just get a response you'll get a great response because for those people who are listening i've asked about three or four questions and they've come up spot on every time and i went oh that's a new one that's a good one <laughs> So I recommend everybody go in there and have a look. It's a great tool. Well done. We'll make sure the links are in our show notes for those that are interested in checking that out. So once again, Brian, thank you so much. That's a pleasure. Sheena, Judah, thanks so much. I thanks, the- Brian. For more information about Every Step and our guests, head to everysteppodcast.com. To be notified of new podcasts, please subscribe via your favorite listening platform. And of course, follow us on social media and direct message us to share your ideas about guests or topics.